And in our second hour, we go from uh, the history of American politics to the history of American baseball uh, and to uh, a memorable time in Chicago's history, particularly, all recounted in a new book titled The The Betrayal. Yes, The Betrayal, the 1919 World Series and the Birth of Modern Baseball. The author of this (coughs) compelling new history is Charles Fountain, who is on the phone with us at this moment, I presume. Are you there, sir? I am, yes, sir. Let's get right into this. Um, Chicago, as you well know, is hoping to get into the World Series again. Um, uh, Not through the White Sox, but rather through the Cubs. But so far, the Cubs are two down in the playoffs uh, as against the Mets. So... um, they they have a bit of work to do to bring the World Series here, but they do. Uh, they do all, indeed. All of America, save for New York, I think, is rooting for them. You think so? Why? Well, I think that uh, you know baseball fans tend to be romantics, and uh, you know the Cubs story is one that appeals to uh, everyone's sense of romance. That I think that uh, if your team's not the team playing them, I think all of America sort of is pulling for the Cubs here. I think the Cubs. Last got into the World Series about a hundred years ago. Do I have that right? Uh, they last won the World Series in 1908. They last played in the World Series in 1945 against the Tigers during the midst of the Second World War, uh-huh. which gave which gave rise to one of the great observations. Both teams were sort of weak and accidental champions with that depleted. Uh, rosters during the war, and a sports writer uh, sort of sized up the series and, uh, you know, made his prediction that neither team could win. I offer you a famous quotation, sort of out of the mists of American folklore. Say it ain't so, Joe. Who said that, and who's the Joe he's talking to? Well, the uh, say it ain't so, Joe, I'm not sure who the first one to say that was. That was some newspaper writer who misquoted the... um, a story that Hugh Fullerton, who was a writer for the Chicago Herald and Examiner, wrote on the day that uh, Joe Jackson confessed to the Cook County Grand Jury to his involvement. Um, The way the story was first reported was that uh, Joe Jackson was leaving the uh, courthouse. There was a crowd on the courthouse steps. This was in um, late September of 1920 when the whole story came apart. And... um, as Hugh Fullerton reported the story, one little urchin, as Fullerton uh, described him, came up to Joe Jackson and said, it ain't true, is it, Joe? And Jackson, in Fullerton's telling of the story, replied, yes, son, I'm afraid it is. And the little boy replied, well, I never would have thought it. Yeah. And that was how Hugh Fullerton reported the story. And somewhere along the way, it ain't true, is it, Joe? got uh, sort of changed to say it ain't so, Joe, which yes. is the phrase that has sort of come down and resonated with fans um, and, uh, you know, fans of history and fans of baseball for almost 100 years now. It's and, of course, the Joe, the Joe in question is Shoeless Joe Jackson. Shoeless Joe Jackson, the White Sox uh, left fielder and the man who has, in a lot of ways, kept this story alive for a century. Had it been only the other seven players... I don't think we'd still be fascinated with the story. I think that it would be a part of early baseball history as a number of other sort of gambling scandals and, uh, you know, little flare-ups that uh, some players were, rumors that players were uh, on the take. 
and fascinated uh, reporters for a few days and uh, have fascinated maybe some, uh, you know, historians going into specific aspects. But, you know, the general historian and the general fan has sort of lost interest in all of those and I think would have in the Black Sox case too were it not for Joe Jackson. Well, but let's really look at it more closely for just a moment, as you do wonderfully well in this quite fascinating new book, The Betrayal. Um, This is the World Series. It's not just another game. And supposedly these eight men took a payoff to throw the series uh, so that Cincinnati won, even though the White Sox uh, had been by far the more favored team. Uh, You don't doubt that the crime did occur. Uh, No, I don't think there's any question but that um, the eight players uh, met with gamblers or groups of the eight players, representatives of the eight players. The eight players never collectively met with uh, gamblers, but they met with one another and uh, representatives met with gamblers. Uh, There is little question but the eight players um, agreed amongst themselves to uh, throw the World Series to Cincinnati in exchange for promises of somewhere between ten and $50,000 per man. Um, that much is uh, pretty much unequivocal. What actually happened is uh, something that I don't think anybody is uh, going to really know. That uh, certainly Eddie Seacott, who was the uh, White Sox best pitcher, uh, he'd won 30 games in 1919. He had an ERA under two. He had 29 complete games in 1919. He was just absolutely an unstoppable force in 1919. And he pitched badly in the first game, and the, uh, the Reds prevailed. Uh, Lefty Williams uh, started game two. He pitched even worse. And uh, Lefty Williams established a sort of World Series standard for futility that has never been matched, that he lost, he started and lost three games in uh, that World Series. Uh, There was a Yankees reliever in the early 80s that lost three games, but he never pitched more than an inning in any of those. But anyway, um, whether or not Lefty Williams, when he confessed to the grand jury in 1920, said that uh, after that first game, he was trying his best to win. Most of the other players who spoke insisted that they were trying their best to win. Um, I think that uh, it's probably very likely that all of the uh, talk about fixing the World Series, the talk about how they would actually do it once they agreed to do it, the um, double-crossing that they endured at the hands of the gamblers, um, all got so inside their heads that I think by you know the middle of the series, those uh, eight players that knew of the plot, as well as the other players on the team that heard you, rumors about it were probably just so distracted by all of it that it was impossible for them to play their best. Um, There's no question but uh, that they agreed to throw the World Series. There is no question that they lost the World Series. But uh, I think there is some legitimate doubt as to whether or not they lost the World Series because they threw it or whether they just lost the World Series because over those nine days, the eight days, the Cincinnati Reds were the better team. Of course, you do say uh, in the book that the culture of American baseball, going way back to around the Civil War era down to that time, was full of tales of corruption and buying players off uh, with a pittance of uh, a few dollars to throw a game was really quite common. 
Yes, I think there's really three pieces of this story. That uh, the center, the centerpiece of it is obviously the World Series and what happened with those um, those players. But leading up to that, as you say, the game was rife with uh, allegiances between players and gamblers. That uh, gamblers and ball players sat very comfortably in one another's company. They would uh, frequent the same hotel lobbies, the same restaurants, the same taverns, and the gamblers were always looking to get an edge. What uh, you know? What pitcher isn't playing well? What uh, what player was drunk last night? What player is having trouble with his wife or girlfriend? Anything to get an edge, and. Um, you know, for the most part, these were penny ante people that were just looking to, um, you know, score a little advantage on their own bets. They didn't have enough money to buy to bribe a ball player. But there were enough of uh, the people who had money enough to buy a bribe a ball player that, without question, there were games that were uh, that were thrown and fixed, particularly in the very early days of the games back in the Civil War up through the 1870s. Once the National League came along in 1876, uh, they worked very hard under a man named William Hurlbert, who won the, who owned the uh, Chicago National League franchise at the time. They worked very hard to eradicate uh, gambling from the game, and were mostly successful. Uh, the uh, time between the in the 1880s and 1890s, we had less of a um, preponderance of events that we than we had earlier than that. Once modern baseball came along, the merger of the American and National Leagues in on 1903, the game fixing sort of crept back into the game that um, the um, gamblers were uh, now better financed and better organized with better access to some of the players. And there were a core of players that had these uh, known allegiances with Gamblers, a man named Hal Chase, who played for the Highlanders, the ancestors of the New York Yankees, was chief among them. And um, the National Commission, that first governing body of baseball, uh, the governing body that was in place from uh, the merger of the American National Leagues in 1903 through the 1919 World Series, were very ineffectual at policing this, that uh, their whole approach to this was to stick their heads in the sand and hope that it would go away. That rumors of game fixing and gambling were bad for baseball, but the only thing that would have been worse was an investigation that proved those rumors were true. So they never conducted the investigation, and the incidents just got a little more uh, common, a little more prevalent, and the shock, I think, of the 1919 World Series from a historical perspective is not that it happened, but really that it took so long to happen. The uh, culprit, the main figure in instituting the bribery, uh, seems to have been a New York gambler uh, and really also a friend of gangsters or uh, ranking as a gangster, though not a mafia because he was Jewish rather than Italian, but that's Arnold Rothstein. Yes, that uh, there's no question, um, well, there's a question about just about everything in this story, <laughs> but it is, um, you know, almost certain, beyond beyond any reasonable measure of doubt, 
that the money that made its hands into the made its way into the players' hands, and it was very little. It was you know probably certainly less than a hundred thousand dollars, probably no more than seventy five or eighty thousand dollars that made its way into the eight players' hands. Uh, that money came from Arnold Rothstein. That it was uh, given to Chick Gandil, the White Sox first baseman, uh, by two of Rothstein's lieutenants. And he, in turn, dispersed it to uh, the players. Um, that uh, there was nobody else involved. The other gamblers who were indicted, the other players in this whole uh, fix, did not have the resources and the money to do this. Arnold Rothstein was the only one who did. The um, He was married to, I think, do I have this right, to... Uh some um, comic actress he was he was married to a broadway show showgirl and uh having an affair with a uh string of uh other broadway showgirls I as see. the yeah. as the Rothstein legend uh goes uh but he was somebody that uh you know also i think gives the story its uh sort of enduring appeal that um he was the sort of embodiment of the uh, the rakish gangster, the yeah. uh, the guy who really did make his uh, living in a whole manner of nefarious uh, affairs, but somehow managed to uh, maintain an air of respectability. That uh, he was seen, he was you know seen as that sort of respectable gangster, that uh, that gambler, that rakish bon vivant that he numbered among his friends. Um, Newspaper man Damon Runyon, the uh, legendary uh-huh. columnist for the Hearst great Taylor, sports writer, yes, was great sports writer. Absolutely, um, covered the nineteen nineteen World Series. In fact, um, but Damon Runyon was one of uh, you know Arnold Rothstein's friends, um, and would would write of him. Uh, Walter Winchell, the the gossip columnist, was one of Rothstein's huh. friends, um, and so too was Herbert Bayard Swope, the elegant editor of the uh, New York World. So Rothstein was treated very um, favorably in the New York newspapers, which gave him sort of a celebrity. And then the 1919 World Series sort of added to that celebrity when the uh, story broke uh, a year later in uh, the fall of 1920. Arnold Rothstein was uh, mentioned by a number of witnesses to testify before the grand jury as the guy who was involved at the center of it. And uh, he, you know, he... He had one of the best lawyers that uh, criminal America ever had, a guy named William Fallon, who, um, you know, managed to uh, manipulate the uh, criminal court system in Chicago in a way that, uh, you know, prevented uh, Arnold Rothstein from facing indictment in the case. He was never indicted. He was never tried. And all of that, that sort of way that he avoided uh, prosecution when everybody involved was pointing their finger at him, that sort of added to the Rothstein legend. Well, we have these eight defendants. Were they all equally guilty or were some more equal than others, as George Orwell might have put it? I think some were more equal than others. That, Which ones? Um, uh, certainly Chick Gandil is the guy who put this together, the first baseman, uh-huh. that um, you know that all of the confusion surrounding this has uh, lent itself to a uh, you know, a, a number of different versions and storytellings, but the one common piece of all of the conflicting stories is that Chick Gandil was at the center of this. 
that he was the guy who had, um, you know, the contacts with the uh, with the Rothstein Associates and with another group of gamblers that were involved in trying to pull the sticks off. And he was the one who recruited first Eddie Seacott, the pitcher, and then um, because Seacott was central to the whole thing, and then, um, you know, the other six players fell into place, um, you know, more or less uh, either by pattern or accident. That, well, uh, Shoeless Joe is very confusing, as one, even as one reads your book, because he presented a very confusing picture in the whole story. He uh, uh, denied that he had any complicity at all, and then at the same time, he testifies before a grand jury uh, that he did have. And uh, then he went on insisting for all the rest of his long career, I had no idea that he hung around baseball uh, on the fringes of the minor leagues for a long, continuing life. He kept insisting that uh, he had been betrayed and maligned, and uh, and he was viewed as a kind of a sad but heroic figure. And and that certainly is where uh, Joe Jackson stands in the pantheon of American popular culture right now. Yeah, there are those that, who still want him in the Baseball Hall of Fame and think that uh, you can still make a case for it. And I think that that is a piece of what keeps this story alive. Uh-huh. I think the one central figure in it is, um, you know, is Joe Jackson. That um, there is no question but that he is guilty of the crimes that got him thrown out of baseball. He accepted the gambler's money. He accepted five thousand dollars. He knew of the plot to uh, to throw the World Series and did not report it. Um, and um, those were the crimes that, uh, you know, got him and his teammates thrown out of baseball. Um, there is no evidence that he did anything to lose the 1919 World Series. He played brilliantly. He batted 375. He had uh, the only home run of the series that uh, he played, uh, you know, defensive, uh, played very well defensively, played errorless baseball. And in the grand jury testimony where he confessed that uh, he was involved, he adamantly denied, uh, you know, this is the strongest part of that testimony, he adamantly denied doing anything to lose the World Series, that uh, the prosecutor asked him, uh, did you bat to win? Yes, sir. Did you field to win? Yes, sir. Uh, Did you run the bases to win? Yes, sir. Um, That uh, did you, uh, you know, did you ever before... Uh, did you ever play a game uh, before that to uh, not to win? No, sir. Did you ever since then play a game mm. not to win? No, sir. He was adamant at this. And I think that the evidence, um, you know, of um, the the success that he's had um, on the field, coupled with the fact that uh, this is a vulnerable character, that, uh, you know, he was illiterate, he came from rural South Carolina, he was the object of tremendous ridicule. Very and he used, to, and he used to play without shoes when he was uh, um, just beginning. That's part that, of the myth. Uh, there, there was one game, the way the story goes, that he had uh, was breaking in a new pair of shoes yes. and uh, blistered his feet and gave himself uh, uh, one at-bat without shoes. Yeah. And as he was... Uh, rounding third base, uh, somebody from the stands yelled, you shoeless son of a gun. And <laughs> a writer by the name of uh, uh, Scoop Latimer of the his hometown Greenville newspapers, this dated way back to his days in Greenville, South Carolina, uh, heard that or maybe invented it, we never know. And uh, thus Shoeless Joe was born. And it was, you know, yeah. the, uh, a nickname that fit 
Oh, uh, you know, a humble, complicated personality. It is curious that the cover story or the ultimate story that he is putting forward in the many years following is, yes, I took their money, but I never gave them what they were paying for. Yes. Uh, that <laughs> was absolutely his story. Yeah. Uh, we are overdue for some commercials, and uh, then we want to get back to this. And uh, back to what you say uh, in your subtitle, actually, the 1919 World Series and the birth of modern baseball, uh, the cleansing operation that was undertaken after the 1919 embarrassment. Uh, directly back to Charles Fountain after this. And we are ready for those calls and those emails. Uh, for email, uh, indeed, send it to milt at 1590wcgo.com. And for calls, uh, directly 847-475-1590. For anything you want to ask of or anything you want to convey, to Charles Fountain, author of this wonderful book in hand now, The Betrayal. By the way, it's published by Oxford University Press. Um, so, uh, back to the subtitle which speaks of the birth of modern baseball. What you have in mind there, of course, is the cleansing operation that was undertaken to reassure the public that this sort of thing will never happen again. Exactly. And that, I think, is the, I mentioned earlier that there were three pieces of the story, the sort of prelude to what happened in 1919, and um, then what happened after the series, which in a lot of ways is when the story really becomes interesting. Um, the day after the series, that when the series ended, Charles Comiskey, the White Sox owner, uh, pretty much knew the story as we know it today. In other words, he knew that uh, that seven of his players, Buck Weaver, who was a part of the original conversations, refused to accept any money and refused to be a part of it. Uh, but, you know, Charles Comiskey knew that the other seven ball players um, were, you know, had been compromised. Who, who, who told him? How did it get to him so quickly? Um, it, um, it got to him... Um, that we think the genesis of Comiskey's knowledge um, came from Kid Gleason, the White Sox manager, uh. who uh, felt that he had been, um, you know, let down by his team in that first game, that he'd heard the rumors, everyone had heard the rumors, that um, the Hotel Sinton in Cincinnati, which was the uh, headquarters for the White Sox, was rife with rumors that the White Sox were in the tank. And the betting uh. odds, which were in uh, favor of the, uh, you know, heavily in favor of the White Sox when uh, the betting began in the weeks uh, and days leading up to the World Series, suddenly plummeted to even money. And by the uh, start of the, the series, the, the Reds were actually the betting favorites in all of this. And uh, so that raised everyone's... Uh, you you know, know, that doesn't uh, sound like very proficient, proficient criminality. It sounds rather, uh, sounds like the gang that couldn't shoot straight. Well, uh, you know, and I think that that's there's a lot of that. There's a you know there's a lot of ineptitude here. You know, the players may have been inept fixers. The gamblers were certainly yeah. inept gamblers, and a lot of them left broke. Um, and uh, you know, the people who would clean it up uh, after the fact turned out to be uh, you know rather inept at the task um, as well. But um, getting back to how uh, Charles Comiskey knew. Um, Gleason, Kid Gleason was, uh, you know, uh, told by Ray Schalk, the White Sox Hall of Fame catcher, that, uh, you know, the um, particularly Lefty Williams in Game 2 had, um, you know, crossed him on signs, and he had never done that all year. 
And so Gleason took this um, to Comiskey. Comiskey took it to um, the president of the National League at the time because Comiskey hated the president of the American League, Van Johnson, and that's a big piece of the story. Uh, they were both members of the National Commission. And uh, together they all went to um, to Van Johnson's uh, hotel room, as the story goes. And Johnson is alleged to have replied when uh, Comiskey laid out the, uh, uh, you know, fears or suspicions that some of his players were um, compromised in this series. Johnson is alleged to have responded that that is the wealth of a beaten cur, that uh, there was no love lost between those uh-huh. two men. And and there the matter sat, uh, that nobody did anything about it, nobody wrote anything about it. And after the series was over, Charles Comiskey hired a team of private investigators, and he sent them across America for several weeks, and in a couple of cases, for several months, following the uh, off-season activities of the players under suspicion. And what Charles Comiskey found was that um, while there was, you know, a new automobile for Happy Felsch, the center fielder, and uh, Chick Gandil had bought a new home, a modest little home out in California, and uh, Swede Risberg's mistress had opened a new beauty salon with money that uh, he had supposedly given her, there was really no smoking gun and no uh, concrete evidence that... uh, what everyone feared and suspected was the case had actually happened. And that gave Charles Comiskey the uh, the confidence to go ahead and sign these players for the 1920 season. It's, nothing's going to come of it. Um, and, you know, it, it, it apparently didn't bother him that uh, he had, uh, you know, knowledge that seven of his players had tried to undermine the World Series, but he went ahead and re-signed them anyway. Um, and... Uh, that was, uh, you know, the part of what was a year-long cover-up um, of what Comiskey uh, knew, that the few writers who did write about it um, did suggest that uh, the series had been compromised, were um, vilified by their colleagues. Hugh Fullerton, who was the writer that did the It Ain't True, Is It, Joe story, um was, you know, skeptical and critical of this from the very uh, beginning. And when he uh, published a story that said there are seven players that won't be back, that uh, there was something, he didn't name any names, but he said, uh, you know, there were seven players that did not play their best and accepted money from gamblers to throw the World Series, and baseball needs to do something to clean this up. His colleagues in the press, particularly the baseball press, um, the Sporting News, um that uh, baseball magazine just vilified uh, Hugh Fullerton. I mean, the things that, uh, you know, they said about uh, Hugh Fullerton calling his, um, you know, his skills as a journalist, his, uh, you know, accusing him of uh, seeking uh, self-aggrandizing attention. Well, how does, how does that then lead to the denouement uh, in that uh, baseball appoints a new commissioner with real power, that's Judge Kedisaw Mountain Landis, who almost well, immediately bans these eight guys from ever playing in the major leagues again. Well, the sequence of events there was that uh, a wholly unrelated charge of game-fixing involving the Chicago Cubs and the Philadelphia Phillies 
in August of 1920, a completely meaningless midweek uh, late season game between uh, you know a team that was in fifth place and a team that was in seventh place. Um, there were rumors that came up that uh, that game had been fixed, uh, that the Cubs uh, had agreed to throw it to Philadelphia and some gamblers in Detroit had uh, financed it. Those rumors led to a grand jury investigation of those charges that uh, Bill Beck, then the president of the Chicago Cubs, and Bill Wrigley, the owner of the Cubs, um, basically asked the grand jury to look into those uh, allegations on that Cubs-Phillies game. The grand jury then decided, since they were looking into gambling uh, on this regular season game, they may as well explore those rumors uh, related to 1919. And uh, that, in turn, led to uh, one of the fringe players who was involved in the fix, um, a Philadelphia gambler by the name of Billy Maharg, telling his story to a Philadelphia newspaper uh, during these grand jury proceedings. And that blew the lid off the whole yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. That, um, that during this uh, you know, uh, cover-up, <coughs> nobody directly involved had ever said anything. Now, who was, who was the man that they hired to clean up baseball? Kennesaw Mountain Landis. It's a wonderful name, uh, but what was it, he? He was uh, probably the most famous judge in America. Yeah. He was a federal district court judge in Chicago, and he had been appointed to the bench in uh, 1905. And in 1907, he made national headlines by fining John D. Rockefeller $29 million for um, Rockefeller's company over, uh, you know, violation of antitrust laws. Mm-hmm. And all of America applauded this, you know, this jurist who would, you know, have the temerity to find Rockefeller this. And do they um, applaud again when he kicks those eight guys out of the league? Um, that is a, uh, you know, a matter of where you stood uh, on on this whole story. Yeah. That uh, certainly a lot of people did. And, and that was certainly uh, the cleansing moment that, uh, you know, that... Um, when Landis, and this was after uh, the players were acquitted at a criminal trial, that uh, the confessions in the fall of 1920 led to indictments. There was a criminal trial in the summer of 1921. The players were acquitted of all charges. They were taken from the courtroom on the shoulders of the uh, spectators. Yes. Uh, they were, you know, slapping the backs of the jurors and being slapped on their back by the jurors. And it was a moment of great celebration which all uh, turned very, uh, you know, differently the next day when Landis said, regardless of the verdicts of juries, uh, no player who conspires to throw a game or who sits in concert with players who conspire to throw a game and does not report it will ever play baseball again. Yeah. And, uh, and they were dismissed. But the story of Landis coming to power is a story in and of itself, that it was not so much that the owners wanted um, somebody who would be a strong leader who would clean up the game. It was that Charles Comiskey was using this opportunity to try and wrest power uh, in baseball from his bitter enemy, Ben Johnson. That the National Commission, the three-person board that ruled baseball, uh-huh. was really dominated by Ben Johnson. And uh, Comiskey and a number of other owners, most of them National League owners, but a small core of American League owners, wanted to see Johnson stripped of this power. And the only way to do it was to bring in a strong, you know, independent voice. So as so often happens in various corners of history, including baseball history, there's a plot within a plot within a plot. 
yes, that, you know, this all turned on a series of, yeah. uh, you know, uh, coincidences. And, you know, the, I, I guess, bottom line, the birth of modern baseball piece of this story is that it all turned out well for baseball, that uh, Landis's decision uh, was applauded by sure. you know, most people. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, you know, the, the which, does that, which does not necessarily mean, however, that we haven't had any um, fixing of baseball games since then. Oh, no. I think that there were a number of, uh, you know, incidents just after that in uh, in the 1920s that, um, you know, showed that there was, you know, still this problem to be uh, dealt with. But the perception, and, you know, certainly we know that uh, perception is sometimes much stronger than reality and much more powerful. Uh, the perception was that baseball had rid itself of its few bad apples, that baseball had you know, successfully covered up gambling for so long that when the Black Sox story hit in 1919, it hit the public consciousness as this isolated incident. And when Landis banned the ball players in 1921, it also hit the public as this uh, moment that, uh, you know, this isolated incident is now behind us and yeah. we can move on. Well, then and, there's, there are the steroid scandals of more recent times. There's still much to discuss, and unfortunately, or fortunately as the case may be, we've got some commercials to process. I'm going to do that right now, right after we invite uh, telephone calls and email. The lines are open, 847-475-1590. And, of course, for email, uh, you go to milt, M-I-L-T, at 1590wcgo.com. Get your... Uh, emails and or phone calls in. Do it instantly because we want to get to you right after this. And uh, directly back to Charles Fountain. Charles, I must read you two emails together uh, uh, which uh, represent, I suppose, the ambivalence of Chicago at the moment. Uh, the first one from Tom in Rockford says, Why all the focus on the Sox? The Cubs should be investigated. They seem to have been throwing games for years. They may have even done it last night, as well as Saturday, if their effort is any measure of guilt. Um, and Neil in Edgewater, a neighborhood here in Chicago, says, Too bad you're focusing on this disgrace of a team. Most sane people know that there's really only one team worth the term professional that comes from Chicago. Go Cubs, go! <laughs> so, we got a Cubs fan and um, an anti-Cubs fan. Uh, in our first batch of emails. Uh, how do you relate this history we've been recounting to the immediate situation with regard to this playoff towards the series? Well, I think that, um, you know, that, you know, I've been asked about uh, this and, you know, what uh, relevance to the here and now um, does this have? And, you know, did this really, um, you know, change the game? And, you know, could this ever happen today? And all of these, you know, sorts of uh, questions. And the answer of, you know, to the question, could it ever happen today, is, um, you know, absolutely not. Obviously, when players are making, you know, um, 8 to 10 to $20 million a year, uh, there's no amount of money whatsoever that could tempt them to uh, compromise their ability to uh, to make that kind of money. So we're never going to have another game-fixing uh, scandal like we had uh, back then. But, it's, it's, you know, it's, you... worth, it's worth remembering that uh, in the interim between then and now, we had scandals in other sports, most particularly in college basketball, where well, teams, were, teams were fixed to throw games. 
Yeah, that you go back to the early 1950s and, you know, City College of New York. And, exactly. Uh, you know, and even to the 1970s with Boston College uh, that led to the movie Goodfellas. The and, story of that. and there is the it, thought that um, professional fights used to be fixed a lot. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe by now they earn so much that you can't fix them either. I don't know. Well, I think that there is, um, you know... Um, compensation for all professional athletes today that uh, have sort of removed that temptation from them. College athletes, that I think it's interesting that, uh, you know, to note that most of the uh, recent scandals have been in, uh, you know, college, that uh, they've, uh, you know, reached the uh, the people that uh, could use whatever small bit of money could be put uh, forth. But if the people in 1920-21 thought that they were purging sports from the influence of gambling, um, you know, certainly history has uh, proven them wrong. I mean, you mentioned the college basketball scandals. Um, but, you know, even today, the proliferation of, uh, you know, NCAA pools, the uh, explosion in really the recent months, not even recent years, but recent months of uh, daily fantasy baseball and daily fantasy football uh, games. Uh, you know, gambling is as much a part of sport now as it has ever been. And I think that the people who may have thought that they were purging gambling from uh, sport back in 1919 would be, or 1921 would be sort of surprised to see that it was just a, you know, a chapter in the passage of the story. I wonder, I wonder, however, if maybe uh, this sort of scandal might recur at lower levels of the game, of baseball. What if you go to the minor leagues? Um. You know, I think that anybody in the minor leagues has their eye on the prize. That, uh, yeah. you know, there's even even those statistics show that, uh, you know, no more than three or four out of every hundred minor leaguers will ever play so much as a uh, single game in the major leagues. Every one of them has their eyes on that prize. Mm-hmm. That, uh, you know, they see themselves as uh, the one that's going to make it. And I think that's why we've got, you know, today's scandal is the performance-enhancing drug scandal. Yeah that uh, players are doing whatever they can to give themselves an edge to uh, get to the top and, you know, in the case of the players in the major leagues, stay at the top, you know, to get that one more $100 million contract uh, that, uh, you know, they're willing to do, um, you know, whatever it takes. Uh, Let me go to another email I've got here. Uh, Graham of Wilmette says, "Uh, this is always a fun story to revisit. I know this is News to no one, but Eight Men Out is the best sports film of all time. And that was, of course, the film. It's one of two films about uh, the Black Sox scandal, isn't it? Well, um, there's there's really other, actually a trio of films from the 1980s. The first was Field uh, of Dreams. The Natural. Uh, oh, the well, natural, The Natural, yeah. which was based on uh, the Bernard Malamute book, Quite so. which was uh, which was drawn from the Shoeless Joe Jackson story. Yeah. That uh, you know there were a lot of uh, biographical similarities. Obviously, The Natural is a work of fiction, but Joe Jackson is at the core of that uh, you know uh, character. And uh, then there was Eight Men Out, and then there was Field of Dreams, the Kevin Costner movie, right. which sort of cemented the romantic Joe Jackson in American culture. Um, Eight Men Out is, um, you know, at the center of the Black Sox story in a lot of ways, that it was the book by Elliot Asinoff in 1963 that um, 
you know, was a extraordinarily popular book. It was made into the John Sayles movie in 1988, a very well-received film. And Eight Men Out is uh, both the boon and the curse to those of us who follow and try to tell the story of the Black Sox. It is the boon because it is, uh, you know, uh, so popularized the story. It's been such a successful book for so long that it's kept the Black Sox story in the uh, public consciousness. It is the curse in that it is uh, so popular and entrenched, but it is a flawed book that um, that Asanoff made uh, no apologies about, uh, you know, writing it for its dramatic um, effect. And there are scenes in there that are fictionalized. The, uh, um, you know, the scene the night before the final game where the thug comes up and threatens Lefty Williams if he doesn't lose the game in the first inning and threatens not only him but his wife was, uh, you know, a complete and utter, um, you know, fiction that uh, there are other pieces of the uh, the book that were uh, dramatized, that uh, he took a single fact and uh, expanded on it. So while it's been a very uh, popular story and the foundation of the Black Sox story uh, and the telling of the Black Sox story in a lot of ways, um, it is a flawed book, and it has left uh, you know the opening. There is more to say about the story. Uh, particularly the Comiskey-Johnson feud and how that led to the hiring of Landis and, uh, you know, the um, the circumstances surrounding the unraveling of the story, um, that, you know, Asanoff left, uh, you know, pieces of the story for uh, the rest of us to tell. Um, let me read you another email in front of me. This is somewhat longer. The trouble with <laughs> the Shoeless Joe legacy isn't Jackson at all, but it's Major League Baseball. The fact that they keep him out of the Hall of Fame is a travesty. Also a travesty is Pete Rose, even though Rose is clearly guilty. Major League Baseball's policy of keeping legends away from the game if they ever walked across a casino floor is hypocritical. Considering uh, that they are the largest shareholders and the fantasy sports site DraftKings, it would be very easy for any player to conveniently have a down night and shift millions of dollars of, quote, action. I don't quite follow the nature of that gambling scenario. Do you? Well, um, you know, the, the, the whole sort of, uh, you know, thing about these day, day, daily or weekly fantasy games is that, uh, you know, you're betting on, um, you know, how a particular pitcher, how a particular hitter will do tonight. And, uh, you know, that, uh, that I... It, it is, you know, certainly surprising, given Major League Baseball's, um, you know, history with gambling. The sign in the clubhouse wall that is in every Major League clubhouse, uh, you know, explaining that anyone caught gambling on a on a game will be, uh, you know, expelled from the from the game. Um, that you know, this whole daily fantasy thing is. Um, Peculiar and uh, you know a great mystery, and I think in a lot of ways will be one of the coming big stories of the next uh, you know 12 to 24 months. We've mm. already seen uh, Nevada make uh, uh, take steps to uh, regulate, uh, saying that no fantasy sports sites will be allowed to operate uh, with without a uh, a gaming license. That there are stories that the FBI is uh, you know investigating DraftKings and uh, FanDuel, the two big um, sites. Um, 
But, you know, back to Joe Jackson and Pete Rose and whether or not they belong in the Hall of Fame. Um, as far as the Joe Jackson uh, story is concerned, um, I think he's better off without the Hall of Fame. That um, that you look at Joe Jackson's career and you put him in the Hall of Fame and, you know, certainly he belongs there. That, uh, you know, he would have been one of the first players elected. Were it not for this, he would have been one of the very first players well, elected. What, what, in fact, were his career statistics? He batted three fifty six, which was the third highest career average. It trails only Ty Cobb and uh-huh. Rogers Hornsby. Uh, he was the first. Uh, you better know, better than Ted. Better than Ted Williams. Better than Ted Williams. Yeah. Better than Sam Musial. He was the first of what you know baseball people call the five tool player. He yeah. could hit. He could hit for power. He could run, throw, and field. Um, and you know he was a smart baseball player. Despite his illiteracy, he was an intuitive baseball player. Uh, as he once said, uh, you know, uh, knowing how to read don't help a fellow play ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, that the illiteracy and intelligence are not, uh, you know, uh, you know, always uh, correlated, as we know. But anyway, um, you know, that if uh, Joe Jackson's in the Hall of Fame, he's one of the 300 players that are in the Hall of Fame. And will, in a lot of ways, you know, say that his story has now been brought to a close. But if uh, Joe Jackson stays on the outside looking in, then we continue this conversation of, uh, you know, did the White Sox players, uh, you know, involved really get a fair hearing? Was that sort of summary judgment of Judge Landis uh, fair to those players? How do we balance, you know, this the responsibility of, uh, you know, one's own actions with, uh, you know, our, our basic human, you know, instinct for mercy. That uh, you know, these are these are questions that I think um, keep an important conversation alive. Um, and uh, it may be Joe Jackson's, uh, you know, greatest contribution to uh, yeah. you know, baseball history and American culture. Yeah, we're and all listen. We're, we're almost out of time, but there's one uh, matter that. I must take up, if only for the brief two minutes that we have left, because I learned this from your book and I never knew it before, namely the origin of black socks. One always thought it was a way of saying that uh, they uh, blackened the, their reputation uh, by the uh, by the betrayal, but that's not it at all, you say. Well, it uh, you know that uh, there was they had that name. The entire White Sox team had that name in a lot of um, ways well before this scandal, uh, because they had the dirtiest uniforms yes. in baseball. That uh, Comiskey you know, refused. That, uh, that, they, you say that Comiskey refused to pay for having the uniforms laundered. They they were charged with cleaning their own uniforms, so they didn't clear uh, clean them. And you look at. Uh, you know these uh, pictures of these players, and and the uniforms are absolutely filthy. It's yeah. uh, you know, it was very much another time, if only for that. Yeah, well, I guess that's one way to to reduce your operating costs. Yeah, I don't think it would be undertaken these days. So well, I thank you most sincerely, Charles, for joining us. Very interesting book. Very well done. Well crafted, I I must say, as well as obviously very closely researched. Uh, Charles Fountain, author of The Betrayal, uh, the 1919 World Series and the Birth of Modern Baseball, has been our guest, Oxford University Press, the publishers. And once again, thank you ever so much. Thank you so much. It was a real privilege to be a part of this conversation, Milt. I appreciate the opportunity.